Back in 1997, Barbara Gruder applied for admission to the University of Michigan Law School. She had a 3.8 GPA and an LSAT score of 161, which is good, but certainly not great. She was denied admission. Oh, and Barbara is white. While the school admits that it considers race as one of the many factors they use in deciding who gets in, it defends this practice by arguing that there is a compelling interest in achieving diversity among its students. The district court held that this interest was not compelling enough, and it enjoined the further use of race as one of the factors in making its admissions decisions. But the Court of Appeals reversed, holding that the opinion of the court in Regents of the University of California v. Baki from 1978 established racial diversity as a compelling governmental interest under strict scrutiny review, and Regents v. Baki was indeed binding precedent. The appellate court rejected the district court's finding as well. So the question before the court was whether the consideration of race in the University of Michigan Law School's admissions process violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In a close 5-4 decision, the court held that because race was only one factor in an individualized review of every applicant, it did not violate applicants' rights to equal protection of the law. And now, the 2003 opinion of the court in Gruder v. Bollinger. Justice O'Connor delivered the opinion of the court. This case requires us to decide whether the use of race as a factor in student admissions by the University of Michigan Law School is unlawful. Part 1 Section A The law school ranks among the nation's top law schools. It receives more than 3,500 applications each year for a class of around 350 students. Seeking to admit a group of students who individually and collectively are among the most capable, the law school looks for individuals with substantial promise for success in law school and a strong likelihood of succeeding in the practice of law and contributing in diverse ways to the well-being of others. More broadly, the law school seeks a mix of students with varying backgrounds and experiences who will respect and learn from each other. In 1992, the dean of the law school charged a faculty committee with crafting a written admissions policy to implement these goals. In particular, the law school sought to ensure that its efforts to achieve student body diversity complied with this court's most recent ruling on the use of race in university admissions. 
See Regions of University of California v. Bakke, 1978. Upon the unanimous adoption of the committee's report by the law school faculty, it became the law school's official admissions policy. The hallmark of that policy is its focus on academic ability coupled with a flexible assessment of applicants' talents, experiences, and potential to contribute to the learning of those around them. The policy requires admissions officials to evaluate each applicant based on all the information available in the file, including a personal statement, letters of recommendation, and an essay describing the ways in which the applicant will contribute to the life and diversity of the law school. In reviewing an applicant's file, admissions officials must consider the applicant's undergraduate grade point average, GPA, and law school admission test, or LSAT score, because they are important, if imperfect, predictors of academic success in law school. The policy stresses that no applicant should be admitted unless we expect that applicant to do well enough to graduate with no serious academic problems. The policy makes clear, however, that even the highest possible score does not guarantee admission to the law school, nor does a low score automatically disqualify an applicant. Rather, the policy requires admissions officials to look beyond grades and test scores to other criteria that are important to the law school's educational objectives. So-called soft variables, such as the enthusiasm of recommenders, the quality of the undergraduate institution, the quality of the applicant's essay, and the areas and difficulty of undergraduate course selection are all brought to bear in assessing an applicant's likely contributions to the intellectual and social life of the institution. The policy aspires to achieve that diversity which has the potential to enrich everyone's education and thus make a law school class stronger than the sum of its parts. The policy does not restrict the types of diversity contributions eligible for substantial weight in the admissions process, but instead recognizes many possible bases for diversity admissions. The policy does, however, reaffirm the law school's long-standing commitment to one particular type of diversity, that is, racial and ethnic diversity, with special reference to the inclusion of students from groups which have been historically discriminated against, like African Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans, who without this commitment might not be represented in our student body in meaningful numbers. By enrolling a critical mass of underrepresented minority students, the law school seeks to ensure their ability to make unique contributions to the character of the law school. The policy does not define diversity solely in terms of racial and ethnic status. 
nor is the policy insensitive to the competition among all students for admission to the law school. Rather, the policy seeks to guide admissions officers in producing classes both diverse and academically outstanding, classes made up of students who promise to continue the tradition of outstanding contribution by Michigan graduates to the legal profession. Section B. Petitioner Barbara Gruder is a white Michigan resident who applied to the law school in 1996 with a 3.8 GPA and a 161 LSAT score. The law school initially placed Petitioner on a waiting list, but subsequently rejected her application. In December 1997, Petitioner filed suit in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan against the law school. The regents of the University of Michigan, Lee Bollinger, dean of the law school from 1987 to 1994, and president of the University of Michigan from 1996 to 2002, Jeffrey Lehman, dean of the law school, and Dennis Shields, director of admissions at the law school from 1991 until 1998. Petitioner alleged that respondents discriminated against her on the basis of race in violation of the 14th Amendment, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and, as amended, 42 U.S.C. Section 1981. Petitioner further alleged that her application was rejected because the law school uses race as a predominant factor, giving applicants who belong to certain minority groups a significantly greater chance of admission than students with similar credentials from disfavored racial groups. Petitioner also alleged that respondents had no compelling interest to justify their use of race in the admissions process. Petitioner requested compensatory and punitive damages, an order requiring the law school to offer her admission, and an injunction prohibiting the law school from continuing to discriminate on the basis of race. Petitioner clearly has standing to bring this lawsuit. The district court granted petitioner's motion for class certification and for bifurcation of the trial into liability and damages phases. The class was defined as all persons who a. applied for and were not granted admission to the University of Michigan Law School for the academic years since and including 1995 until the time that judgment is entered herein and b. were members of those racial or ethnic groups, including Caucasian, that defendants treated less favorably in considering their applications for admission to the law school. The district court heard oral argument on the party's cross-motions for summary judgment on December 22, 2000. Taking the motions under advisement, the district court indicated that it would decide as a matter of law whether the law school's asserted interest in obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body was compelling. The district court also indicated that it would conduct a bench trial on the extent to which race was a factor in the law school's admissions decisions, 
and whether the law school's consideration of race in admissions decisions constituted a race-based double standard. During the 15-day bench trial, the parties introduced extensive evidence concerning the law school's use of race in the admissions process. Dennis Shields, director of admissions when Petitioner applied to the law school, testified that he did not direct his staff to admit a particular percentage or number of minority students, but rather to consider an applicant's race along with all other factors. Shields testified that at the height of the admission season, he would frequently consult the so-called daily reports that kept track of the racial and ethnic composition of the class, along with other information such as residency status and gender. This was done, Shields testified, to ensure that a critical mass of underrepresented minority students would be reached so as to realize the educational benefits of a diverse student body. Shields stressed, however, that he did not seek to admit any particular number or percentage of underrepresented minority students. Erica Munzel, who succeeded Shields as director of admissions, testified that critical mass means meaningful numbers or meaningful representation, which she understood to mean a number that encourages underrepresented minority students to participate in the classroom and not feel isolated. Munzel stated that there is no number, percentage, or range of numbers or percentages that constitute critical mass. Munzel also asserted that she must consider the race of applicants because a critical mass of underrepresented minority students could not be enrolled if admissions decisions were based primarily on undergraduate GPAs and LSAT scores. The current dean of the law school, Jeffrey Lehman, also testified. Like the other law school witnesses, Lehman did not quantify critical mass in terms of numbers or percentages. He indicated that critical mass means numbers such that underrepresented minority students do not feel isolated or like spokespersons for their race. When asked about the extent to which race is considered in admissions, Lehman testified that it varies from one applicant to another. In some cases, according to Lehman's testimony, an applicant's race may play no role, while in others it may be a determinative factor. The district court heard extensive testimony from Professor Richard Lempert, who chaired the faculty committee that drafted the 1992 policy. Lempert emphasized that the law school seeks students with diverse interests and backgrounds to enhance classroom discussion and the educational experience both inside and outside the classroom. When asked about the policy's commitment to racial and ethnic diversity, with special reference to the inclusion of students from groups which have been historically discriminated against, Lempert explained that this language did not purport to remedy past discrimination, but rather to include students who may bring to the law school a perspective different from that of members of groups which have not been the victims of such discrimination. Lempert acknowledged that other groups, such as Asians and Jews, have experienced discrimination, 
but explained they were not mentioned in the policy because individuals who are members of those groups were already being admitted to the law school in significant numbers. Kent Siverid was the final witness to testify about the law school's use of race in admissions decisions. Siverid was professor at the law school when the 1992 admissions policy was adopted and is now dean of Vanderbilt Law School. In addition to his testimony at trial, Siverid submitted several expert reports on the educational benefits of diversity. Siverid's testimony indicated that when a critical mass of underrepresented minority students is present, racial stereotypes lose their force because non-minority students learn there is no minority viewpoint, but rather a variety of viewpoints among minority students. In an attempt to quantify the extent to which the law school actually considers race in making admissions decisions, the parties introduced voluminous evidence at trial. Relying on data obtained from the law school, Petitioner's expert, Dr. Kinley Lawrence, generated and analyzed admissions grids for the years in question, 1995 through 2000. These grids show the number of applicants and the number of admittees for all combinations of GPAs and LSAT scores. Dr. Lawrence made cell-by-cell comparisons between applicants of different races to determine whether a statistically significant relationship existed between race and admissions rates. He concluded that membership in certain minority groups is an extremely strong factor in the decision for acceptance, and that applicants from these minority groups are given an extremely large allowance for admission as compared to applicants who are members of non-favored groups. Dr. Lawrence conceded, however, that race is not the predominant factor in the law school's admissions calculus. Dr. Stephen Roddenbush, the law school's expert, focused on the predicted effect of eliminating race as a factor in the law school's admission process. In Dr. Roddenbush's view, a race-blind admission system would have a very dramatic negative effect on underrepresented minority admissions. He testified that in 2000, 35% of underrepresented minority applicants were admitted. Dr. Roddenbush predicted that if race were not considered, only 10% of those applicants would have been admitted. Under this scenario, underrepresented minority students would have constituted 4% of the entering class in 2000, instead of the actual figure of 14.5%. In the end, the district court concluded that the law school's use of race as a factor in admissions decisions was unlawful. Applying strict scrutiny, the district court determined that the law school's asserted interest in assembling a diverse student body was not compelling because the attainment of a racially diverse class was not recognized as such by Bakke and is not a remedy for past discrimination. The district court went on to hold that even if diversity were compelling, 
the law school had not narrowly tailored its use of race to further that interest. The district court granted petitioners' request for declaratory relief and enjoined the law school from using race as a factor in its admissions decisions. The Court of Appeals entered a stay of the injunction pending appeal. Sitting on bonk, the Court of Appeals reversed the district court's judgment and vacated the injunction. The Court of Appeals first held that Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke was binding precedent, establishing diversity as a compelling state interest. According to the Court of Appeals, Justice Powell's opinion with respect to diversity constituted the controlling rationale for the judgment of this court under the analysis set forth in Marx v. United States, 1977. The Court of Appeals also held that the law school's use of race was narrowly tailored because race was merely a potential plus factor, and because the law school's program was virtually identical to the Harvard admissions program described approvingly by Justice Powell and appended to his Bakke opinion. Four dissenting judges would have held the law school's use of race unconstitutional, Three of the dissenters, rejecting the majority's Marx analysis, examined the law school's interest in student body diversity on the merits and concluded it was not compelling. The fourth dissenter, writing separately, found it unnecessary to decide whether diversity was a compelling interest because, like the other dissenters, he believed that the law school's use of race was not narrowly tailored to further that interest. We granted certiorari to resolve the disagreement among the courts of appeals on a question of national importance, whether diversity is a compelling interest that can justify the narrowly tailored use of race in selecting applicants for admission to public universities. Part 2. Section A. We last addressed the use of race in public higher education over 25 years ago. In the landmark Bakke case, we reviewed a radical set-aside program that reserved 16 out of 100 seats in a medical school class for members of certain minority groups. The decision produced six separate opinions, none of which commanded a majority of the court. Four justices would have upheld the program against all attack on the ground that the government can use race to remedy disadvantages cast on minorities by past racial prejudice. Four other justices avoided the constitutional question altogether and struck down the program on statutory grounds. Justice Powell provided a fifth vote not only for invalidating the set-aside program but also for reversing the state court's injunction against any use of rates whatsoever. The only holding for the court in Bakke was that a state has substantial interest that legitimately may be served by a properly devised admissions program involving the competitive consideration of race and ethnic origin. Thus, we reversed that part of the lower court's judgment that enjoined the university from any consideration of 
the race of any applicant. Since this court's splintered decision in Bakke, Justice Powell's opinion announcing the judgment of the court has served as the touchstone for constitutional analysis of race-conscious admissions policies. Public and private universities across the nation have modeled their own admissions programs on Justice Powell's views on permissible race-conscious policies. We therefore discuss Justice Powell's opinion in some detail. Justice Powell began by stating that the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both were not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. In Justice Powell's view, when governmental decisions touch upon an individual's race or ethnic background, he is entitled to a judicial determination that the burden he is asked to bear on that basis is precisely tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. Under this exacting standard, only one of the interests asserted by the university survived Justice Powell's scrutiny. First, Justice Powell rejected an interest in reducing the historic deficit of traditionally disfavored minorities in medical schools and in the medical profession as an unlawful interest in racial balancing. Second, Justice Powell rejected an interest in remedying societal discrimination because such measures would risk placing unnecessary burdens on innocent third parties who bear no responsibility for whatever harm the beneficiaries of the special admissions program are thought to have suffered. Third, Justice Powell rejected an interest in increasing the number of physicians who will practice in communities currently underserved, concluding that even if such an interest could be compelling in some circumstances, the program under review was not geared to promote that goal. Justice Powell approved the university's use of race to further only one interest, the attainment of a diverse student body, with the important proviso that constitutional limitations protecting individual rights may not be disregarded. Justice Powell grounded his analysis in the academic freedom that long has been viewed as a special concern of the First Amendment. Justice Powell emphasized that nothing less than the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to the ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many peoples. In seeking the right to select those students who will contribute the most to the robust exchange of ideas, a university seeks to achieve a goal that is of paramount importance in the fulfillment of its mission. Both tradition and experience lend support to the view that the contribution of diversity is substantial. Justice Powell was, however, careful to emphasize that in his view, race is only one element in a range of factors a university properly may consider in attaining the goal of a heterogeneous student body. For Justice Powell, 
It is not an interest in simple ethnic diversity in which a specified percentage of the student body is in effect guaranteed to be members of selected ethnic groups that can justify the use of race. Rather, the diversity that furthers a compelling state interest encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics of which racial or ethnic origin is but a single, though important, element. In the wake of our fractured decision in Baki, courts have struggled to discern whether Justice Powell's diversity rationale set forth in part of the opinion, joined by no other justice, is nonetheless binding and precedent under Marx. In that case, we explained that when a fragmented court decides a case and no single rationale explaining the result enjoys the assent of five justices, the holding of the court may be viewed as that position taken by those members who concurred in the judgments on the narrowest grounds. As the divergent opinions of the lower courts demonstrate, however, this test is more easily stated than applied to the various opinions supporting the result in Baki. We do not find it necessary to decide whether Justice Powell's opinion is binding under Marx. It does not seem useful to pursue the Marx inquiry to the utmost logical possibility when it has so obviously baffled and divided the lower courts that have considered it. More important, for the reasons set out below, today we endorse Justice Powell's view that student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the use of race in university admissions. Section B. The Equal Protection Clause provides that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Because the 14th Amendment protects persons, not groups, all governmental action based on race, a group classification long recognized as in most circumstances irrelevant and therefore prohibited, should be subjected to detailed judicial inquiry to ensure that the personal right to equal protection of the laws has not been infringed. We are a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. It follows from that principle that government may treat people differently because of their race only for the most compelling reasons. We have held that all racial classifications imposed by government must be analyzed by a reviewing court under strict scrutiny, this means that such classifications are constitutional only if they are narrowly tailored to further compelling governmental interests. Absent searching judicial inquiry into the justification for such race-based measures, we have no way to determine what classifications are benign or remedial and what classifications are in fact motivated by illegitimate notions of racial inferiority or simple racial politics. 
we apply strict scrutiny to all racial classifications to smoke out illegitimate uses of race by assuring that government is pursuing a goal important enough to warrant a use of a highly suspect tool. Strict scrutiny is not strict in theory, but fatal in fact. Although all governmental uses of race are subject to strict scrutiny, not all are invalidated by it. As we have explained, whenever the government treats any person unequally because of his or her race, that person has suffered an injury that falls squarely within the language and spirit of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection. But that observation says nothing about the ultimate validity of any particular law. That determination is the job of the court in applying strict scrutiny. When race-based action is necessary to further a compelling governmental interest, such action does not violate the constitutional guarantee of equal protection, so long as the narrow tailoring requirement is also satisfied. Context matters when reviewing race-based governmental action under the Equal Protection Clause. In Adirond Constructors, Inc., v. Peña, we made clear that strict scrutiny must take relevant differences into account. Indeed, as we explained, that is its fundamental purpose. Not every decision influenced by race is equally objectionable, and strict scrutiny is designed to provide a framework for carefully examining the importance and the sincerity of the reasons advanced by the governmental decision-maker for the use of race in that particular context. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.